Please remain standing as we pray together. Come Holy Spirit now. And Lord, take this wonderful event of the transfiguration. And Lord, I pray as it says here in the scriptures that when the disciples became fully awake, they beheld your glory. Lord, we pray that in this passage of, of scripture, we would behold your glory. Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips, of a people of unclean lips. I'm not worthy to touch this holy book. But please, Lord God, send your purifying fire and make me a fit vessel to preach and grant us all ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is the last Sunday in the season after Epiphany. On Ash Wednesday, this week, we begin the season of Lent. Thank you, Lord, I am so ready for Lent. I, I, it's bad when you start looking forward to Lent. Uh, Lent is a time of uh, self-denial and a time of reflection on the state of our spiritual lives. And for some reason this year, I, I, I keenly feel that, that need in my own life. But today, we come to the last Sunday before the season of Lent. And on this Sunday, it is traditional to read the Transfiguration passage. Now, we actually have a whole day set aside. It's uh, August the 6th. Uh, August 6th is Transfiguration, uh, the Feast of the Transfiguration. So this passage is brought before the church twice during the year. And I think it's very appropriate, though, that it comes at this point in our lectionary text reading because it really is from here on that Jesus begins his journey to the cross in Jerusalem. In this season of, of the season after Epiphany, the lectionary, those Bible readings that we have each Sunday, have emphasized how in Jesus Christ God has revealed his glory to the world. That's what Epiphany means. It means the manifestation of God, the revelation of God. And in today's passage of Scripture, the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ is front and center. Anytime, that, you, know, anytime you hear that Jesus has been transfigured and his, show, uh, his clothes become dazzling white like lightning, basically, and his face is metamorph metamorphized, that's actually in the Greek there, he is metamorphized, then we know that God's glory is being revealed in a very profound way. And at the transfiguration, Luke says that when Peter, James, and John became fully awake on the mountain, they saw his glory. This is a passage about the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And it is a strange passage. This is a strange event. In some ways, this is the Jesus we always wanted. You know, all bright and shiny. Jesus with special effects. Uh, CGI Jesus that transforms right before your eyes. But the amazing thing here is that when Jesus is transfigured so that his glory is revealed in a moment that looks a lot like triumph, there is a direct connection between that glory and the cross. And it is intentional and it is here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we might see it that way as well. You know, we can't separate God's glory, Christ's glory, from Christ's suffering. The intentional literary arrangement of the book, of, of book of Luke, under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, unites Jesus' suffering with his glory. These are inseparable. And right at the beginning of this passage, we just heard uh, Jesus read for us, it says, now, about eight days after these sayings, that's how it started, eight days after these sayings, what sayings are we talking about? <clears throat> well, you have to go back up to Luke chapter, uh, we're still in Luke 9, but if you went to verse 21, it says this, 
And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell, uh, to tell this to no one, saying, listen what Jesus says right before the, the transfiguration. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And immediately after the events that we just read this morning, right after that passage that we just heard today, Jesus says something almost identical to what he had just said earlier in Luke chapter 9. Back on, uh, if we went down to four, verses 43 and 44, we would hear this. And all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, listen to what it says, Jesus said to his disciples, okay, we've seen the majesty of God, the glory of God in Jesus. That's when Jesus turns around and says this to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. (laughs) Isn't that really a powerful turn of phrase? Let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So Jesus foretells his death before and after the transfiguration. But it is in the transfiguration itself that we get a glimpse of the meaning of his death. And so let's look at this event. Jesus is transfigured. He reveals the glory of God. He's transfigured to look very much like I expect him to look when he returns at the end of the age. With his face shining and with his garments bright and transfigured and beautiful. And so we see right here his glory as it will be revealed at the end of the age at his second coming when his work has been accomplished. But then Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. It says, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, I've, I've, I've said this before. It just, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Um, and you know, my, you know my theory is that in heaven people wear name tags. <laughs> Hello, my name is Moses. But I don't know. They obviously knew it was Moses and Elijah. Why these two guys, why of all of the Old Testament saints to come before, why would it be Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus on the mount? Because it is because Moses and Elijah represent the law, Moses the lawgiver, and Elijah is the premier of the prophets. He is the archetypal prophet. So they represent law and the prophets. In other words... The law and the prophets is a shorthand way of saying all of God's revelation to his people Israel. All that has gone before, because Moses and Elijah have showed up to speak with Jesus, is saying this. Everything that you've read in the law and the prophets is about Jesus. It's leading up to this point. It's leading up to this moment. And and we know this for sure because where do we hear that phrase, the law and the prophets, pop up again? Well, if we were to go to the end of Luke and look in Luke chapter 24 at the Emmaus passage, remember uh, the day of resurrection, uh, two sad disciples walking back to Emmaus. They don't know that they've heard that some of our women have astonished us saying that... That he's alive, but you don't know what's going on here, Jesus. And, of course, he's the only one that does know what's going on there. And it says then in that passage, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, interpreted to them all the, scriptures, in the, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So the law and the prophet. Now, why is that significant? It is significant because what is about to unfold as Jesus leaves the mountain to begin his walk to Jerusalem has been God's plan from the beginning. This is not some tragedy that unexpectedly occurred. It is in the sovereign and eternal purposes of God. The eternal purposes of God. And that's why we have all of the Old Testament pointing to this moment. 
Now, it's interesting that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about the event of the transfiguration. The three synoptic gospels all mention the event of the transfiguration. But listen, guys, Luke is the only one who tells us what Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus about. All of the others don't talk, don't talk about it. But Luke says what they were speaking about. <clears throat> and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, it says they speak of his departure, but the word in the Greek language there is a very special word, and it's supposed to ring a bell when we hear it. Listen to what it is. It literally says they spoke of his exodus. They spoke of his exodus that he is about to achieve, accomplish when he gets to Jerusalem. See, the exodus was God's archetypal prime saving action in all of the Old Testament. In fact, so much of the scriptures, all of the Old Testament scriptures speak about the exodus. If we go back to the Psalms, so many of the Psalms refer back to the exodus. Uh, we heard it today in the psalm that we, we offered up today, lead, being led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's a reference to God leading the people through the wilderness in the exodus. So the exodus is God's mighty saving act in the Old Testament. Now remember that God, what happened in the exodus is that God delivered his people from slavery and from bondage into freedom in a land of promise. So that's what all of Israel thinks about when they think about God's saving actions is to be delivered from slavery to go into a land of promise as free people. That's what Jesus is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. He is about to deliver his people, but not just his people. All of humanity is about to be delivered from bondage to, sl to slavery uh, in sin and to the bondage of death. Brothers and sisters, please hear me carefully today. We have been set free from bondage to sin and death through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He, he wipes out the sin debt that we owe on the cross. And he breaks the shackles that bind us to a way of living that will always enslave us. And here's the deal. We are so ready so much of the time to put the manacles back on. We have been set free. Uh, there has been a verse buzzing around. I didn't put this in my notes. I'm actually going to have to look it up in a Bible. Let's see if I remember how to do this without the app. <laughs> Siri, look up Titus chapter 2 for me. It's in, the old, it's in the New Testament. That's right, New Testament. I've got it. There we go. I want you to listen to what it says in Titus. Titus chapter 2. For the, listen, this is 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Now listen, what is grace? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now here's what grace does. We think, when we think of grace, and I hear it all the time, most people, what they're talking about is not grace. They're talking about a get-out-of-jail-free card. A license to sin. 
In other words, it's a way to put the manacles of bondage back on again. But that's not what the Bible says when it talks about grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does grace do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what Jesus does. He gives us grace. He delivers us from slavery to sin. He delivers us from the power of death. And that's what he accomplishes. It is our exodus through Christ from the things that keep us enslaved. This is the hinge point of Jesus' ministry. Up to this point, Jesus has been on an itinerant ministry of proclaiming the kingdom of God and demonstrating the kingdom of God, the inbreaking kingdom of God, through mighty deeds of power. Right before this passage, he feeds the thousands. He, he literally raises the dead. He heals the sick. God's kingdom is breaking in through Jesus Christ. But here at the transfiguration, it's almost as if his ministry leads up to this mountain, and as a hinge point, it leads down from this mountain to Jerusalem, to a journey that will end at the cross. And that's exactly what it says a little farther on in Luke 9, the same passage we're in, the chapter we're in. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So the transfiguration is the glory of God before the cross. Jesus descends the mount only to go to Jerusalem for the passion. Christ's glory and his eternal sonship are inseparable from his role as suffering servant. You cannot know Jesus in his glory if you will not know him in his suffering. You can't, you can't pick it apart. You cannot know Jesus in his glory if you will not know him in his suffering. Now, why is that? I mean, I do ask myself this question. I mean, <clears throat> why is Christ's glory so connected to his suffering? It sounds, if we really think about it, it sounds a little perverse. Why would glory be associated with suffering? Why is it so connected together in Jesus Christ? You know, we're not Buddhist. Buddhists would have no problem with that. Buddhists say that life is suffering. Life is suffering. But we don't believe life is suffering. We believe that life is Christ. So why is suffering so integral to, Lisa hates it when I say it like that, integral, why is it so integral to this, why is it so integral to Christ's glory? Here it is, listen, because the glorious God who comes to us in Jesus Christ, this is why these things are inseparably joined together, the glorious God who comes to us in Jesus Christ is love, he is love. Self-giving love is the life of the eternal Trinitarian community. And when self-giving love encounters a fallen world, it cannot be anything else but a suffering love. It is inseparable from suffering. This is what Scripture says in 1 John chapter 4. It says, anyone who does not love does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Oswald Chambers says that the transfiguration was the great divide in the life of our Lord. He stood there in the perfect, spotless holiness of his manhood. Then he turned his back on the glory and came down from the mount to be identified with sin. 
Now, I want you to think about this. Anyone who's ever had a, ever had a child, anyone who's a parent, you, you will see how suffering and love go together. And I'm not talking about childbirth. Think about this. The love poured out on a child as an infant is a source of limitless joy for a parent and for a grandparent. It is, it's got to be, like I said to other people, uh, grandchildren are just old people crack. They just, it's just the best thing that ever happened. I'm serious. I can't, oh, the only reason I'm on Facebook, really, I could do with every, everything else, but I am not, not going to watch Annalise videos. Did you see her crack those eggs by herself? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's what it's like. But if that child grows up and rebels and rejects that parent or takes a path of self-destruction, all of that parent's love for that child becomes suffering love. It's suffering at that point. Or if that child is struck down by disease or accident because of the sheer fallenness of the world, that parent's love becomes suffering. I can't. I can't help but think it's just one of the most horrible things that I've ever heard of. And you know what I'm talking about, the uh, 13-year-old girl that was murdered. And I saw, and why they made that mama come and talk in front of the television, I do not understand. But her love for her child is nothing but pain now. C.S. Lewis said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven you can be perfectly safe from all dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Why is suffering and glory united in Christ? Because he loves a creation that is bent on self-destruction. He loves a people who are bent on self-destruction. And it breaks his heart. It's the only response that love has to that. Whenever I choose my self-will over his will, it wrings his heart. If you've ever had a child that just was like, like in a, in a uh, like one, one of those... Um, pinball machines like they're a ball in a pinball machine rocking back from one encounter of near near tragedy to another you you know it's like it's like oh my gosh it just rings your heart love and suffering are always together in a fallen world and beloved if we are united to jesus christ by the new birth and sealed with the holy spirit then the transfiguration of jesus is a preview of our lives in christ We cannot experience the glory we were created for in Christ unless we embrace his cross and welcome his suffering into our lives. This is the testimony of Scripture. To love Jesus and to love the world that he came to save in the way that he loves it means that we will be wounded by this world. Scripture says in Romans chapter 8, 
bringing together glory and suffering. The Spirit, himself, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You cannot suffer, separate suffering and glory. Ryan Stout is a blogger and a pastor out in the Midwest. He, he's Lutheran, so there, there's a little Lutheran love for you this morning. He says about this passage, we're presented at two ends of Lent, at the two ends of Lent, with two very different images of Christ victorious. Here atop the mountain at the Transfiguration, we see Jesus lit up like the Vegas Strip, bright and shiny and everything you could want our God to be. And at the other end of Lent, at Good Friday, we see his far more shocking glory, enthroned on a cross, crowned with thorns, robed in blood, and raised up high for all the world to see. And yes, we will see the light of Christ shining again, transfigured again, but it awaits us now only on the other side of the tomb. It is the cross, not the crown which remains the most solemn and beloved symbol of our faith. Because only in the cross do we see how deeply runs the love of God. How much does Jesus love us? All the way to hell and back. Brothers and sisters, let us embrace our transfigured Lord, cling tightly to him, but know that when we do, we are also embracing his cross. It's a cross that is his love for this world. It will bring glory, but it is a strange glory. And if we will hold tightly to him, we will come through the cross to the great glory and of a new creation in the resurrection. Let's prepare for Lent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.